0: It is outrageously cold uh, outside it it warmed up for like like a minute like you know just a little bit like it got a little like a like warmed up it got above thirty two you know um but then like you know we're back to looking at snow tonight so but but that that brief little like moment of like semi warmth pseudo warmth it, it it got me dreaming about spring picnics um and so I had a I had an analogy that like You know, I want want to give you all, I want to paint you all a a, a little picture, you know, all hypothetical, of course. Let's imagine a hypothetical situation where I invited you over to a cookout. I told you, bring the kids, come hungry, the grill's going to be on, it's going to be a great time. You'll remember that, that sermon that I preached last week about how Christians are supposed to throw great parties. So you're really looking forward to it. Oh, and by the way, in this scenario, COVID-19 is a thing of the past. This is a leave your troubles at the door kind of party. And in this hypothetical scenario, when you arrive, I'm at the grill because that's where I love to be. And it's early in the season, which means we're doing burgers and dogs. So when you arrive... Um, you come up and you say hi, and, and I greet you enthusiastically. I'm just going to say, Hey, man, how's it going? You want some food? How about a drink? And you say, Oh, it's so great to be here. We've been looking forward to this all week. Boy, am I hungry. I'll take, man, I'm really hungry. So I'll take a cheeseburger, a hot dog, and a beer. And I say, No problem. Beer's there in the cooler because last week we learned it's okay to have beer at parties. And here is your burger and your dog. You say, Thank you. And I say, that'll be $25. You look at me aghast. And this is the speech you give me. You're charging for food and drink? What's wrong with you? That's crazy. And it's not like you asked me to chip in. No, you've calculated some specific number and and you have like a jar there of money in it because apparently other people have fallen for this scam or or maybe you just filled the jar with your own money hoping that it'll make me think other people had actually paid where do you where do you get $25 that's outrageous my whole family could eat for that if you said that you would be absolutely right to be furious it would be ridiculous for me to charge $25 for a cheeseburger a hot dog and a beer not to mention it would be a shameful breach of hospitality So why do I bring it up? Because if you and I went to Camden Yards or M&T Bank Stadium or a movie theater, that's exactly how much we would be paying for a cheeseburger, a hot dog, and a beer. Why do we pay such prices? Because they got us. We're not allowed to bring outside food into the ballpark, and even if we were, by the time we got there, it would be all smushy and disgusting. The beer would be warm, and the food would be cold. But we want to eat, and it's fun to have a beer at the game, so we pay the high prices. And it's even worse in the movie theater. But maybe, or, or maybe we've gotten so used to those high prices, we don't even think about it anymore. We either just pay the money or we just assume that the prices will be so astronomical that we actually don't even go to the concession stand. I don't even want to eat at the, at the, at the ballpark because I know the prices are going to be so crazy. So keep all of that in mind as we ask ourselves the question in this passage, why is Jesus so angry? John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It was actually south of where he was, uh, in in, around Galilee region, uh, but they say up to Jerusalem because it was on a hill. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the, the coins of the money changers and overturned, overturned the temples. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house into a house of trade. His disciples remembered, this is Psalm 69, they, they, they remembered Psalm 69, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, that the temple authorities said, hey, 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 buddy, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Like, wh- wh- by what authority are, are you driving, are you doing this, this, this stuff? And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. And the temple authorities, the Jews said, what do you mean? It's, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed uh, the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And then we also get this little note at the end where it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He, you start to get the impression that he, he knows why the cross is going to be necessary. He, didn't, he needed no one to bear witness about like, what was in the hearts of, of humanity, for he himself knew what was in humankind. So let's walk through this. First of all, I'm going to try very hard not to knock this water over today. Anyway, first of all, John tells us that the context for all of this is the Passover of the Jewish people. This is a time clearly associated with liberation from oppression and deliverance from slavery. They believe, the Hebrew people believe that that God had done it in the past and that they believe that God would do it again. Israel was under the occupation of the Roman Empire at the time. So so pagans had infiltrated the Holy Land, and even though many had returned from exile after the things that we saw in in the book of Daniel, uh, after the wars with with Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and and now Rome, there's actually still an awful lot of people that aren't living in Israel. The Passover was a time that they would have been reminded of how God had been faithful to them in the past, and, and specifically... We hear about the Passover in Exodus 12, when God's people were in slavery in the land of Egypt. And God told Moses and Aaron to instruct the people on the, on the first Passover. God said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell the people that each household should take a lamb, and not just any lamb, the best one, one without blemish. And you're going to kill this lamb when instructed, and then you're going to have a family feast. But before the feast, you're going to take some of the lamb's blood and you're going to paint a bit of it on the front door of your house. And then you'll have your feast. You're going to roast the lamb over fire and you're going to eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs to to remind you of the bitterness of your bondage. And you're going to do all this. I want you to do all this with your traveling clothes on because you never know when I'm going to move. You see, God had declared judgment on Egypt and he's going to execute that judgment, and he's going to show grace and mercy to his people, his people Israel. Grace is something that you don't deserve, is, is getting something that you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. And, and God is going to show his people both. And so when the angel of death passes through the land of Egypt, he will pass over the houses of God's people. And in the future, Um, When when you're liberated from Egypt and one day your kids are going to ask you why you do this every year, you can tell them that it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And with a mighty hand, he delivered his people. The Passover was called was what was called a, a pilgrimage feast, so folks from all over the place would have traveled uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was seen as the intersection of heaven and earth it was a symbol of the intersection of heaven and earth the proper place to make their sacrifice. Now you could bring a sacrifice if you wanted, and that was but that was easier said than done, especially since these animals were supposed to be perfect, without blemish. It wasn't easy to haul a lamb all the way from Babylon or wherever, and it certainly wasn't easy to haul the lamb through the desert and still have him looking sharp when you arrived. And even if you got him there, you would still have to pass through the temple inspectors who were going to tell you whether or not this lamb is up to snuff. And if it's not, well, no problem, because they just happen to be running a deal on sacrificial lambs we also have oxen for sale and pigeons at the low, low price of, well, what do you got on you? $6.50 for a hot dog, $10 for a Coors Light, $7 for a soda, and that's not all. You can't just use any money here to pay for this. you got to use special money. Tyrian Shekels, to be exact, they have the best silver content. So before you pay this sacrifice you're going to need to go over you need to shimmy on over to that money changer over there and you're going to need to make sure that you got the right coinage. And don't be surprised by the way if that exchange rate is a little more aggressive than what you were expecting. You understand of course that these are difficult times for all of us. But you're there. They got you. You've traveled all this way and you don't want to leave and go home having not celebrated the Passover. They got you so you pay the money enter Jesus. He sees this enterprise taking place on the grounds of the temple, um, and, you know, maybe the disciples were all about the business, you know, they, 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 they've been through this before, and they knew that Jesus had been through it before, but, but then they, like, they, they walk into the temple complex, and they see Jesus going, going over to, like, what's he doing? He's, like, getting some rope or something, and, and then he takes this rope in his hand as if it's, like, he it looks like he's making a whip, and what well, Oh my gosh, he starts he's driving out larger animals from the temple, and then he's going over to the money changers and he's pouring over their their tables, he's pouring out their coins, he's he's overturning everything they're doing, and he he told the guys with bird cages, like take them away. And he and he says something then about houses. He says, he says, Don't make my father's house a house of trade. This statement. This statement, that don't make my father's house into a house of trade. This statement has led, in our age, um, many to discuss. It has led many to discuss and debate and argue one of the deep philosophical questions of our time. Should churches host yard sales? It's interesting that Jesus doesn't mention the exploitation. His primary focus at the moment seems to be that the people had turned the temple into a marketplace. So you might say, ah, ah, in your Jeff Goldblum impression, ah, ah, there it is. You know That's why churches should ho- shouldn't host yard sales. Jesus himself said it, so don't turn the house of God in- into a marketplace. But not so fast. That logic, gets us off, that logic often gets us in trouble because, hang with me here, we often assume that the Hebrew temple, God's house in the center of God's kingdom in Israel, equals, in our day, buildings like this one. We assume that the temple in the old covenant is to church buildings, like an SAT, is to church buildings in the new covenant. The temple in the old covenant is to church buildings as the new covenant. And kids? That's thinking, thinking. No, where, where is this temple? Where is the temple in the new covenant? Where is the intersection of heaven and earth in the New Testament? Jesus. The intersection of heaven and earth is not the temple. It's not the church building. This place isn't that intersection of heaven and earth. It is indeed the house of God, but it's no more the house of God than your house is the house of God. And how do I know that? Because he said it. He says it. The next thing he says in the passage, we already read it. It's the next thing that happens in the story. The temple authorities ask him, hey, hey who do you think you are, buddy? By what authority do you come down here whipping oxen and sheep and turning over tables and insulting us? You know, actually they say, what sign? What sign do you show us for doing these things? And now you and I know as Johannine scholars that the, that the sign, that the word sign is actually a loaded word in the book of John. John mentioned it last week in last week's story about how Jesus turned water to wine and how that was that miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee Cana, the wedding in Cana was actually the first sign that Jesus performed. And as we said last week, signs point to something. Jesus doesn't actually do a sign here because, you know, he's not a monkey for their amusement. But what he says is going to put us, uh, is going to point us to where this whole ship is headed. Jesus looks at the temple authorities and he says, you guys want a sign you guys want to sign, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Well, the temple authorities say, <laughs> hey, man, um, that's, that's my impression of a temple authority. Hey, man, um, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Uh, you're just going to build it back up again in three days? Well, well at this point, Jesus, uh, you know, John offers some commentary on the day's events. Um, and if you're reading this story for the first time, like, you know, it's kind of a spoiler, you know? He, he says, oh, but he was talking about the temple of his body. And you're like, well, you know, I could have let the story work for me. You know, it's like they gave away the movie right at the beginning, you know, gave away like the, the end of the movie right at the beginning. I, you probably like that uh, picnic analogy from earlier, so I'll give you another one. The first Star Wars movie came out in 1977, uh, May 25th, 1977. I'm going to ruin Star Wars for everybody, so hopefully you've seen it. Or if you haven't seen it, you don't care. But anyway... The people that went to that movie theater on May 25, 1977, had no idea what they were walking into. These characters were all new to them. And they go to the theater, and they meet this boy named Luke Skywalker who lives on some desert planet named Tatooine, this planet that has two sons. And Luke lives with his aunt and his uncle on a farm. And one day, in order to go find a lost robot, He meets up with a guy named Ben Kenobi, who is a Jedi Knight, whatever that means, and he's able to give Luke some information on the biggest question of his life. Who were my parents? Ben, who also goes by the name Obi-Wan, tells him that Luke's father was the best starfighter in the galaxy. He was a cunning warrior, and Luke is finally able to ask somebody the question that's been burning inside him. He says, how did my father die? And Ben looks at him and says, a young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine before he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct because Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. Now, what would happen if at that moment in the theater, the camera actually turned from this you know, discussion between Alec Guinness and Mark Hamill and, and went on over to, to George Lucas, who was, like, standing there in the corner. And George Lucas says, hey, guys, he who's the writer of the film and the director, he says, hey, guys, actually, Darth Vader is Luke's father. And what Ben meant when he said he betrayed the Jedi Order, um, what he meant was that he, he betrayed the Jedi Order and murdered the man that he once was. He betrayed himself, and he murdered himself, the man he once was. And oh, and by the way, his mom, Luke's mom, who, 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 had, who had at one time been the queen of Naboo, dies in childbirth because her heart was irreparably broken over her husband's betrayal. And the girl that we're about to see in a hologram message, that's actually Luke's long lost twin sister. Just keep that in mind as, as, we, as you watch the next few movies. Now back to the film. If that had happened it would have made for a completely different experience the entire 80s would have been different back to john i hope i didn't you know gosh i hope you hadn't like gosh i hope i went to watch star wars one day you know one day i ruined it cool there you go back to john see we're only in chapter 2 and John gives away the ending. Jesus says, Destroy this temple in three days, I will rise it up. And then John says, Actually, he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when he was raised from the dead, Jesus is gonna be raised from the dead. His disciples remember that he had said all this. So, why the spoiler? Why give away the ending? Because John wants to color his entire gospel account with the truth of the resurrection. He wants you thinking about the resurrection the whole time. He wants to spoil the ending. He wants you thinking about resurrection each step along the way as we go through the next 18 chapters. Why is this important? Because John wasn't just telling a fictional tale. He wanted to get the word out, but he, he wasn't telling a story for your amusement. He was writing this story because he believed that Jesus actually had been raised from the dead. And this resurrection is actually going to be the first sign of a whole new creation. And all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, will be invited to follow him out of the tomb and into new life, into new creation. See, clearly Jesus was upset that the religious establishment had turned the temple into a marketplace, a house of prayer a house of worship had been turned into a house of trade. But, but it's not like business itself is unholy. Jesus then pointed to his passion, his crucifixion, when he talked about the destruction of the temple of his body. And as we learned about in the Bible project, what happens is, is that this temple of Jesus' body actually becomes the cornerstone of what is the, the new created order. Turn with me to First uh, Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, they, they mention this very briefly in the video. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, to, to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stubbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and as they were destined to. But, but you, you people of God, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for, who, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. See, once you see what uh, Peter does here, in verse ten. Once you were not a people, meaning once you weren't any, but You were scattered. Once you were all over the place. Maybe you were of the 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 Hebrew. Um, uh, maybe you were one of the Hebrew people, but but you're you're uh, you're spread out over the empires, over, over the world, uh, or maybe you were a Gentile. You you really had no. Uh, people that you called your own. See, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. He's drawing you into himself. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the new temple. He is the intersection of heaven and earth. As John the Baptist said, he is the unblemished lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, there's nothing for you to buy. Jesus already paid the price on the cross when he died for your sins and mine. No amount of money could buy God's love. His grace is free. No amount of prestige could earn you a place in God's kingdom. He's inviting you and me to to live as if God's kingdom is in our midst, because it is, right now. We don't have to wait until one day when we die. He's inviting us into that right now, just as we are. And there is no good thing you need to do to earn God's love. You have God's love. He loves you. The truth is, whether whether you love him or not, he loves you. And he's calling you home he he, you may have been far off you may have not been a people you may have been living outside the kingdom but now he's calling you home he's calling you back he's calling you back to what to the temple but the temple isn't a building with brick and mortar no the temple is the person of jesus christ who desires to set up his rule and reign where in the temple of your heart so that, so that you could also be a part of this new temple that he's building, this cosmic temple, and become a chosen race, his people, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, the people of God's kingdom. Who, by the way, still do, as we heard in Peter and we see it in places like Romans 12, we still do offer sacrifices. But but these sacrifices don't atone for our sin. Christ on the cross atoned for our sin. These sacrifices are the sacrificial way that we live, the ways in which we spread His love and His grace and His mercy by using the, the work of our lives into the world. I mean, Ephesians says puts it this way: puts it this way. You were saved. We were saved by grace through faith for works. You were saved for a reason. See, we offer sacrifice by modeling sacrificial love to others, by living in a way that is cruciform, cross-shaped. And in God's economy, the sacrifice of the cross leads to the resurrection. The sacrifice of, of, of the crucifixion is actually what leads to new creation. The Gospels tell us that at the moment Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple, of the temple was torn. The veil that, that separated the most holy place from the, from the rest of creation. So if the temple was seen as the intersection of heaven and earth, now in Christ, the, the, it, it's as if you know people came from all around to come in to the temple, uh, complex, um, into the temple complex, into the intersection of heaven and earth, or what was, was symbolically seen is that now in Christ... The glory of the Lord will now leave the temple and fill the earth as the waters cover the sea, like it says in Habakkuk. We, we sang about it. The earth is filled with his glory. And that glory spreads how? Through people like you and me, doing things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. You see, in the Old, te- in the old Covenant, God's people brought sacrificial lambs to the temple complex in order to atone for their sins and remember that God was faithful, that God is faithful. He will always be faithful. In the new covenant, God's covenant faithfulness drives him to dwell in the midst of his people. In the person of Jesus who is the cornerstone of the living temple who dies the once and for all death on the cross as the lamb who takes away the sins of the world but then causes people through the resurrection to reflect that love back out into creation. So, if that's true, how should we apply Jesus' anger today? Is it we should, should, we, should we be upset about the church hosting yard sales? No, I think he could care less about us hosting yard sales. In fact, I think he would affirm that we are doing ways to try to reach out into the community. That's, that's lovely. What we should be angry about is anytime something gets put between God and his people, Anytime someone says, you can't worship here, you can't be a part of this community, you can't be one of God's people because you don't look the right way, you don't dress the right way, you don't speak the right way, you don't love the right way, you don't vote the right way. We, Anytime someone puts something between us and God's free gift of grace, we should be furious at that. That's not because we excuse things like sin. No, God's going to call sin out for, for what it is, but his grace is free. We should be rightly furious anytime there's a price tag put on God's love. Anytime somebody says that'll be $25 to worship here. No. Now, what, what does that mean that, that that we can accept this free gift of love. I mean, does, does this mean that we can just accept this free gift of love and kind of live however you want? No. Bonhoeffer talks about cheap grace, which is important to remember that, that the paradox of the Christian faith is that it is completely free, but that it also calls us to surrender all when we surrender all by trusting that God alone holds the keys to salvation, the keys of the kingdom, that is the moment that we are born again as a new creation. When we trust in him alone, when, when he is on the throne of our lives, when he is on the throne of our heart, when we operate according to his agenda, not our own selfish agenda, that actually, it's funny, that actually becomes the moment of true and, true and pure freedom when we are born again as a new creation. And that is a whole lot of what we're going to talk about next week with Jesus and his conversation with uh, Nicodemus now, let's pray. Father, bold we approach your eternal throne. We approach you and the person of your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our Lord. He's our Savior. Father, we We accept this grace. We accept this gift of free grace, unmerited favor. But as we do that, we desire to then leave uh, the, the, the grounds of this place and actually be the temple all over the world, wherever we find ourselves, wherever you send us as we operate through the ways that, that, that you have told us to operate, through this whole new way of being human. Father, we give it all to you. We give our entire lives to you. I, I pray for, for the person right now who might be thinking, like, yeah, like that's great on a Sunday morning, but tomorrow i got to get up and i got to go to work. The, the reminder here is that tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, whenever you, whatever, wherever you find yourself tomorrow morning, you are actually doing the work of the temple there you are being the people of god at whatever job you're doing so do it do it with all your heart do it with 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 serving another person through whatever it is that he has you doing father i just pray that you would remind um, my friends of that this morning Uh, lord we give this all to you we give our worship to you Uh, we give this day to you Uh, in the most holy name of jesus christ the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world amen